Tonight's talk is called Inspiration and Motivation for Our Practice Path. It's about the four mind and heart transforming reflections. I'm aware of the fact that quite some of you are familiar with this topic. Some may even do these reflections regularly which is fantastic if you do. They're meant to be thought over again and again in one's life. And in the 12 years I spent with my Tibetan teacher, Geshe and other lamas, I heard them countless times, maybe hundreds of times. So I'm happy to repeat them again. It's the reflections on the precious situation of being a human being who practices the Dharma. One. Reflection on the fact of change and of impermanence and death. Third is reflection on the law of cause and effect of our actions, karma. And the fourth, reflection on the truth of the unsatisfactory, often painful nature of the non-liberated state of being. The first is the reflection on the preciousness of our situation as human beings who have encountered the Dharma or any liberating spiritual practice. There are many important aspects to this worthy of our attention and reflection. So the talk is kind of a way of reflecting through those different points, which you can maybe remember if you want or go along with me. One is that we're intelligent enough in a way that made us stop and begin to ponder the important questions of life. And that's quite fortunate, quite unusual. Lots of people never get to that point in their life. Having the fortune to be quite well educated, that's another point. How does one cough when one wears this? Excuse me. Maybe a third of humanity can still not read and write at all. It's always been impressive for me to see the poor kids in, in Bokaya, in Bihar, in India. It's one of the poorest areas on earth. How eager they were to go to school if they were allowed to go to school, if it was possible for them to school. How happy they were. I have to say, I never liked to go to school, so it's was more even more impressive how happy they were to to uh, learn things <clears throat> and how many of the poor kids there don't have a chance to ever go to school and many of them who had the school they could go to school for three four five years but they could never go beyond that we t- take all that for granted 
And yet it's something remarkable. Having the interest, having the education. We have interest in exploring the nature of our being. We have interest in inner development, in inner freedom. And we have an ideal material situation. We live in abundance, while a big part of humanity has to struggle for survival. 20 or 40,000 children a day die every day, die from hunger, malnutrition, or lack of clean water. It's kind of just figures, but if you imagine something like a hundred Airbus crashes a day, all, everyone filled with kids. No TV news, no newspapers reports at all. So we're really privileged here in the wealthy Western countries. We have great outer freedom. We can more or less do as we please. We can believe, we can practice what we want. If you think of Tibet or China, big Tibetan monastery was closed not so long ago. Some of the monks were imprisoned. Others were chased away or made to disrobe. That monastery had become successful I mean, there are monasteries, but this one had to be had become successful, so they closed it immediately. There are thousands of people who sit in Chinese prisons because they adhere to the views of the Falun Gong movement or other beliefs they hold. We can believe, we can speak, we can read, we can write, we can print and publish whatever we want. Books, Seminars, retreats, long retreats, spiritual support. It's all available for us. We have this beautiful practice place here. So our situation is quite amazing, quite wonderful and very precious in many ways. Sometimes it's good to remember not to take it all for granted and rather than feel strange about it or awkward, you know, see if we can rejoice and really appreciate. Well, let's just think about all the support that's here for us in this place. The managing, the organizing, the housekeeping, the maintenance, shopping and cooking of great food, beautiful place to be in. It runs with clockwork perfection. So many people, those visible and also many invisible, making a lot of effort, doing a lot of work to keep us practicing here. I practiced in Asia, mostly in India, for many years. I also taught the Bodhgaya retreats for many years. This place here is really a deva realm. It's a place of the heavenly gods. If you think four people to a room is a lot, and it is a lot in one way. And yet in, in uh, the Thai temple in Bokaya and those retreats, um, which are still going on, 
the times I was there were about 60 men participating in the retreat. They were all in one underground room with no windows and one door. With straw mats. We're pretty well off here. And it was a good retreat, you know, I think still now. Good retreat to do in Bokaya. So to have this situation as a human being, the one we have with the possibility to practice, the interest to practice, it's extremely precious, it's extremely rare. The Buddha illustrated how rare it is to have the kind of situation we all have. He used this uh, image of the blind turtle, which you probably have heard. You imagine a golden ring floating on the ocean, you know, somewhere on the ocean, tossed here and there by the wind and the waves. And somewhere at the bottom of the ocean, there's a blind turtle. And that blind turtle comes up for air or for whatever turtles come up every hundred years, once. They get very old, okay? So once every hundred years the turtle comes up. And as rare as it is for that turtle to come up and come right through that golden ring, it's that rare for beings to have the situation we all have, the Buddha said. The Lama Kyongla Rato Rinpoche, who used to come all the way to Bern, here in Switzerland, from Manhattan, New York, where he lives, he explained that um, having this precious human situation can be compared to someone who comes from America to Switzerland and knows that since he or she is here now, They need and want to tour and visit all the important places and sites. And he listed um, the Matterhorn and Jungfrau and Heideland and the banks and all that. Because one realizes that once back in the U.S., one won't have the opportunity to do it anymore. Similarly, this precious human life is a unique and rare situation that needs to be used best to develop and to realize the important things of life while one has it. And that is developing kindness, compassion, finding deep wisdom and inner freedom. And we all have this situation and this opportunity. So we're very lucky, very privileged. Shantideva, great Indian poet and bodhisattva says, In this boat of the human body, we can cross the flood of suffering to the shore of freedom. Do not sleep now. Don't be a fool. So it's very precious. And yet our situation is also very fragile. Everything is impermanent. Our life ourselves. That's the second of the four reflections, the one on impermanence. The Buddha compared our lifespan to an arrow 
shot by a skillful archer. As soon as the string has been pulled, it does not wait, but quickly reaches its target. So also is the life of humans. We're continually going to its death, and it's a one-way traffic road. It's strange sometimes when I think, you know, if you know, we could turn back a little, not all the way, but like three years, five years, 15 in my case. <laughs> and no, we're, we're really only here for a visit. It's the story of this rabbi. In the last century, a tourist from abroad visited the famous Polish rabbi Hafez Hayim. The tourist was astonished to see that the famous rabbi's home was only a simple room with some books and the only furniture was a table and a bench. Rabbi, where is your furniture? The visitor asked. Where is yours? asked Hafez. Mine? But I'm only a tourist. I'm only a visitor here. So am I, said the rabbi. It's like we get this tourist visa for this life for some years, 25 or 50 or maybe 80 or a little more, and then that's it. We have to pass on. I recently read in the newspaper that in India, the Rajdhani Express train derailed and 50 people got killed. It's the train many of us have been taking many times and many do still regularly take it to go from Delhi to Bogaya to sit, uh, to teach the retreats there. So accidents, diseases, it could hit anyone, any time of us, any one of us, any time. Or to use Jim Morrison's words, lead singer of The Doors, no one gets out of here alive. So we can probably all relate to Woody Allen when he said, aging and death, I'm totally against it. And yet, it's essential to recognize this fact of impermanence quite clearly and to do that over and over again. And it's true not only for ourselves, but for all things, all beings, all situations, all experiences, everything. Our natural tendency is to forget about it or somehow to deny it, to not think about it. In the Mahabharata, an essential Hindu text, Indra asked Yudhishthira what he thought was the most amazing thing with humans. And then he answers himself, it's the fact that they see people dying all around them of all ages and still somehow deeply believe that it will not happen to themselves. And I th maybe we can all recognize that, doesn't it? 
may sound familiar. It's somehow unimaginable, maybe, that which is going to pass on. Yeah, so we know, and yet we don't. It's the illusion that somehow keeps us from really seeing it. That's why it's so central in meditation to become aware of that specific aspect of all experience. The fleeting, unstable, ungraspable nature of all experience, of all things. And that also maybe shows why it's not really so important what our experiences are. We're always concerned about what kind of experience we have. But that's not really so important. You know, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, or whether we get the ones we like or those we don't like, something Carol spoke about last night. What matters is that we see that all of them, without exception, come and go, arise and pass, appear and disappear endlessly. And to see that, we don't need special experiences. Any experience that comes up has that kind of a characteristic. Whether it's the breath, whether it's a sensation, whether it's a pleasant or an unpleasant sensation, whether it's a thought, a feeling, or another breath, or joy, or loneliness, or hatred, it all comes and goes, comes and goes. And it's not enough to just know intellectually. We all know that, of course. It's not enough. We need to have it impressed on us over and over again by direct experience so that it really will sink in. But thinking about it, reflecting about it in this way also helps because it makes us more aware of it and we see it more easily. I mean, it happens every second, everywhere but we begin to notice it more readily. The Lama Gendun Rinpoche explains why it is so important to be aware of this impermanent changing nature. He says, When we are not aware of impermanence, the fact of arising and disappearing of things, we will stay bound in our desires and in the rounds of cyclic existence. We try to get and to acquire things without realizing that they're impermanent and unreal. They change from moment to moment. Even when we finally manage to get the things we wish for, they won't stay long. This unawareness of impermanence leads to great frustration partly because we are unable to influence and control circumstances and situations the way we would like to, to, partly because it is impossible for us to keep those things. So we behave much like a child who is fascinated by a rainbow and runs after it. The child would like to own it and believes that it truly exists. Yet the child has no chance to catch the rainbow, let alone keep it, because the rainbow, by nature, is unreal, is unsubstantial. We believe that things 
the world, the riches and the situations are real. We think that they're stable and that we can get and keep them. We spend a lot of time and energy with this. But our wishful thinking and the actual nature of things are not in accord. And the results are discontent, frustration and suffering. That's Gendun Rinpoche. On the other hand, if and when we do practice properly, when we do realize the changing and fleeting nature of life and of all things, a realistic and meaningful relationship with life becomes possible. And through that, wisdom and serenity become our way of being. But only when we're fully aware of the preciousness of this life's opportunity and of its fragile, impermanent nature will we really practice seriously. Once we're motivated to really practice, it is important to understand the laws and workings of karma. Karma means action, the laws of our actions and their effects on ourselves. And more precisely, it's the intention behind the action, as Carol explained earlier on. Basically, the law of karma says, or means, wholesome actions, wise, helpful actions of thought and in the attitude, of speech and of outer activity create pleasant and healing results for us, for ourselves, for the person who acts in that way. Just as a cart follows the oxen that pulls it, says the Buddha, so do pleasant results follow wholesome actions, inevitably. Unwholesome, deluded, life-destroying, exploitive actions of thought and in their attitudes, of speech and of outer activity create unpleasant or painful results for ourselves. Just as the shadow follows the person who casts that shadow, It's much like when we plant the seeds of sour lemons. We'll get sour fruit. Well, from mango seeds or pits, we'll get sweet mangoes. It's a lawful process. And it says that our actions have an effect. Actually, it says that all our actions of thought and speech and bodily activity have effects. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Much like a stone that it is thrown into water and the waves ripple, move out in all direction for quite some time. So there's an effect further away later on. Mostly our actions have effects on ourselves. We do them and we experience what that this does to us. For example, when we're aware and sensitive and 
for whatever reason we choose to lie, we can feel what it does to ourselves. If we lie, we need to get ready to produce a whole web of lies just in case the one isn't enough or just in case they ask back or they want to know more. So we have to be on guard and we can't be open and relaxed anymore in that kind of situation and circumstances. And we strengthen that kind of tendency to speak untruth in us each time we do it. I used to go to uh, England to teach retreats in at Gaia House in Devon for about 20 years. And um, it's considered work. I receive not the salary, but I receive donations. And that uh, changed a few years ago when we sort of um, had no special contracts with the EU. But up to that time, I wasn't supposed to tell the immigration what I was doing. And they always ask. I didn't like the situation. I'm really not good at lying. But I, kn I know if I would have told them, it would have been really complicated. And most likely, I, they would have turned me back. So I had some thoughts. My sister lives in England. I wasn't going there, but that was helpful. But it's awful. I had to, and I knew the question they asked. So I said, but if they ask this, you know, what would I say? Okay, I would say this, that's easy. But then they will... They might ask that. So I had to sort of rehearse on the plane. It's awful. It's just a small uh, example, sense of what that kind of unwholesome, unskillful action does to oneself. And I think it's quite obvious with all those actions of thought, of speech, and of mind. We create our own climate within ourselves. So again, karma means action, but it really refers to the motivation, the intention behind the act. So for example, when we give a gift, but we really do it out of some self-serving, gain-seeking intention. Maybe they like me or, or they think really positive about me then that action, of course, doesn't create the wholesome karma of generosity. But it creates the one according to the actual intention. And we can't cheat. They know in here. They can tell. What all this means is really that in, in some way, we have our own future in our hands. We don't know what's going to happen to us. In that sense, it's not true. But in terms of our capacity and uh, uh, training of being able to relate to whatever comes skillfully or unskillfully, in that way, we have our own future in our hands. That's why it's important and relevant. Whether we practice mostly ill will or desire and delusion, or whether we practice awareness, insight and kindness. It matters whether we sleep and dream through our life or we wake up from the dream. 
what we do in each and every moment has an effect. And that's also a little bit the trouble with it, because it's not only now and then that it has an effect. I prefer to think that I'm practicing, you know, when I sort of label it that way. I sit down, meditate or walk up and down, and I, or I do metta, a metta retreat. So that's practice. And there I create karma. And then in between I don't. It doesn't count, okay? <laughs> like we sit every day at home, 40 minutes, very good, good karma. And the other 17 hours, uh, 20 minutes, they don't count. It's all practice. Whatever we do in those 17 other hours is practice. If we practice ill will, it's the practice of ill will. If we practice mindlessness, it's the practice of mindlessness. It doesn't make a difference. They don't say in here, you know, okay, this counts, this doesn't count. It's an obvious kind of lawful process. And the way we condition ourselves, and in a way you could see it as conditioning, nothing very complex, you know, karma, very metaphysical. It's how we train ourselves, what habits we get ourselves into, how we condition ourselves. And if you belief in rebirth, that's also uh, what will decide how it's going to go on. Trungpa Rinpoche apparently was asked to explain karma and rebirth and how it works. And the question was, what is reborn? And he said, it's your bad habits. It's our bad habits that are reborn, maybe next life, but reborn tomorrow morning, reborn after tomorrow morning. And fortunately, it's also our good habits, our wholesome habits. So it's these tendencies which we keep on strengthening, which we then become. No wonder people's life can feel unfulfilled and unsatisfactory. If we wish for happiness and joy and serenity, but inside we keep on producing ill will, judgments, desires and demands, attachment, conceit, no wonder that it gets difficult. We are our tendencies, at least on a conventional level, not ultimately, we're not our tendencies. But that's why we need spiritual practice, why we do it. Rumi says, you're cold, but you expect kindness. What you do comes back in the same form. God is compassionate. But if you plant barley, don't expect to harvest wheat. So if you don't practice, we continue to endlessly produce suffering for ourselves and we create what is called samsara the endlessly revolving cycle of suffering. After the reflection on the precious human situation we have, on impermanence of the situation, and on cause and effect of our actions, 
effects on ourselves. This is the fourth reflection here. The endless cycle of trouble we get ourselves into or we can get ourselves into. Very traditionally, it's what is called the six realms we're born into over and over again. Realm of hell beings, of hungry ghosts, of dumb animals, of jealous demons, of humans, and of the gods, gods of light and bliss. Now we may not believe or not even be interested in the idea of rebirth. That's okay. Not trying to sell it to anyone. I don't know myself. But I find it very interesting and revealing to see this process happening on a day-to-day, even moment-to-moment level. We get angry, we get furious, and right there we're reborn into an inner realm of hell. We're dull, sleepy, confused, unaware, and right there we linger in the animal realm. We can't wait for lunch, we're greedy, or we feed some sexual fantasy, and right there we're a hungry ghost. Hungry ghosts have very tiny mouth and vast stomachs. And food turns into fire when eaten. It's the fire of ceaseless craving and grief, greed. Or we're envious or jealous of what our neighbor gets or has or does or our immediate neighbor who can sit longer or who can sit stiller than we do in the meditation hall or looks better or seems more clever or wealthier and right there we're born as jealous demons or we feel metta we feel open, we feel generous, with profound peace and concentration. And there, we're in the realm of God, of great happiness, God of deep peace, great pleasure also. Or, we're quite present, quite clear, restrained, open and settled, and we're in a human world again. Here in this we experience both pain and pleasure, suffering and joy, just enough that it wakes us up, but not too much, so we can still practice. And here we have the opportunity to wake up and to learn. That's why it is said to be the best place to be in. It's not the Deva realms. They say it's too much fun there. We're not really inspired anymore. It's these long lifespans. And you can, ex- again, translate it. You know, If everything works out really well and it looks like it's going to last, somehow the urge to really deeply practice may sort of loosen up a little. So we have the best of all situations here. When we fully recognize the infinite preciousness of our situation, when we realize how fleeting and fragile it is, when we see that our future is in our, in our own hand, 
and realize that the potential for suffering is quite vast. And also understand that inner suffering or serenity depends mostly on ourselves. Then we really look for a practice, we really look for a path, and we look for a refuge. Seeing how much we create suffering for ourselves, we begin to want out. Maybe like people in a war-torn land where things are not safe but dangerous. There's suffering everywhere. We become refugees. We look for a safe place. A refuge from suffering and torment, from inner suffering and torment. It's actually an image uh, Trungpa Rinpoche also used when he was asked to explain refuge. He said when we were in Tibet and uh, the, after the Chinese invasion, especially for uh, religious people, monks and nuns and lamas, it was very dangerous, like they were killed and imprisoned by the thousands. They said where everyone looked, where everyone turned, was great suffering and was really dangerous. So the question was, where is a safe place? Where is a refuge? So refuge is where you go, where we go, where we are safe or free from suffering. So we need to find out where such a refuge could be found. We need directions. We need direction to a place or to a situation we can trust. And therefore we need to know what it is we can trust. The traditional practice of taking refuge, of going for refuge, as some say, is exactly looking at this question. The question of direction, the question of goal, or meaning we, we could give to our life. The question of what it is we can really entrust ourselves to. Traditionally, the refuge is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I'll explain, and I'm sure Samuel has explained in the mornings too. I'll explain again what this might mean for us. And many of you know this well. I still want to get into it. Because to me, it's not just some formula or some nice chant we can do. But it's a very essential part of Dharma practice. And I'll explain why. Achan Chah, who was a great master of the ascetic Thai forest meditation tradition, said that at some earlier point in his practice as a young monk, doing forest monk's practice, begging for one meal a day, and then sitting and walking in the jungles, and also spending the nights there. Apparently they sit in the jungle and they have a mosquito net that they hang on a tree branch and that sort of gives a little protection. And there's tigers, there's snakes, there's ants. Often they're freezing cold and they're with those three pieces of cloth. And he says he sat there one night extremely cold and he was very sick. He was very ill. 
and he was trying to take refuge and he couldn't find the refuge. There's nowhere to turn. So here's the question for us, for each one of us. When life gets really difficult, when it's at its worst, what will we do? Where will we actually turn? What is our real refuge? Will we pray to God or despair? What will we do? So that's the important question, I feel. And we can't just answer that. I think it's a practice. We, it must be our practice. In a way, it's the most basic question in what we do here. You know, meditate, get some nice state, state of mind, and then go home. Is that going to do it? If not, what is going to do it? So let's look once again at what Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha could mean for us. And there are many levels of how we can see it. What it can, could mean for us who might perhaps not be Buddhists. I'm not speaking about a Buddhist kind of refuge or, or a, um, Glaubensbekenntnis. What could it mean for us who might not have the slightest wish to be Buddhist? Who might be atheists or agnostics or humanists or Christians or whatever? Refuge in Buddha could mean we trust in or we take as our direction awakening, waking up, waking up of being lost in our Myriad stories and waking up from the delusion we're caught in about the nature of life. Take as our direction our own potential for liberation from suffering, from bondage. More practically, it's really awareness of the kind that remains undiluted and unidentified and not caught up in sense impressions and emotions and thoughts, but it remains at ease, at rest in itself. That's a refuge. And of course, that's not just there. We have to develop it, develop it. And that's what we do here. That's something worthwhile to do. It's demanding. The ultimate refuge... The ultimate Buddha, if you wish, in the sense of refuge, of course, is unconditional freedom, is our own liberation. But for now, that's the direction. In a more conventional way, it means that our central concern in life is maybe not our relationship, is not our career and promotion, not our house, is not our home, is not our car, is not our shopping center, even we may use all these things or have them or need them. Not even friends or family, but wisdom itself and the kindness and compassion and love for all that comes with it. So it's not the religious thing, refuge in the Buddha. It's about the word Buddha means awaken. So that's really the direction, I think. Refuge in Dharma means 
We trust reality. Dharma has two meanings. One meaning is the, the way things are, this universe, this lawful world. And the other one is teachings that help us to come into tune with this universe. Teachings who liberate. So we learn to trust reality. We learn to trust the moment, this very moment. We trust things as they really are. We entrust ourselves to the lawfulness of life and not to our habitual, deluded, not often, not very realistic notion of life. And I always, always like that. You know, it sounds really good. We entrust ourselves to life as it really is. But if we remember how it really is, it is impermanent, it is ungraspable. There's no foothold anywhere for real duration. So to entrust ourselves to a universe that really is of that kind of lawfulness, it sounds, easy, it sounds nice, but it's demanding. And yet that's the only place we can entrust ourselves. It means practice, means to learn to develop our mind to a place until we're in a place it is okay with not holding on to anything. That's a true refuge. The more we can go in that direction, the more moments we have in our practice of not, of really connecting but not grasping, we develop a refuge within ourselves. It's simple and it's extremely demanding at the same time. And we trust the teachings, the ways and means which lead to understand to the understanding of life and the liberated way of being. Teachings with, which lead to a relationship of kindness and care with this world. We could also say, in another way of looking at it, this refuge in Dharma, we take refuge in karma in our deeds, as we have seen before. Here's Rumi again. He says, Three companions for you. Companion number one, what you own. He doesn't even leave the house for a danger you might be in. Stays home. Number two, your good friend. At least he or she comes to your funeral. He stands at the graveside and speaks. Not more. The third companion, how you act, your deeds. They go with you into death and will be with you to help. Take deep refuge in this companion beforehand. So Buddha, Dharma, we entrust ourselves to our spiritual friends, to Sangha. We trust that which is wholesome and expose ourselves to positive and to supportive influences. There's a reason why Sangha is one of the three refuges. Life is so tightly interwoven. We depend on others in so many ways, and we're so easily influenced by others, by our surroundings, and by society and our culture. And it's really unrealistic to believe 
that they want, that they will not condition us. Every advertising poster that looks at us, every movie we watch, every written piece we read, influences us. And it's really important to face that. It's even more so with people. Wherever we put ourselves, that will influence us. If you go on a retreat on, on um, metta meditation or awareness meditation, you'll be influenced by all the people who, who are interested in that. If you go to an army boot camp, you'll be, interested. You'll, you'll be influenced by what is going on there. And most of us probably will not uh, be able to say um, what Master uh, Sheng Yen said uh, for those who were here at Ursula's retreat. He was 10, year in, 10 years in the army and he confessed that a few times he had had, the, he was a monk actually and he had no choice, he had to spend time in the army that a few times I had dreams like a soldier, not like a monk. And he sort of confessed that it seems to have been the influence. Imagine, you know, ima I imagine to be in that kind of surrounding and influence. So Sangha means we choose the people, we choose the surroundings uh, by which we will let ourselves be influenced. Most helpful, spiritually like-minded people, Sangha. Those who have gone on this path before us, those who are going along with us, those who are the best support in this respect, who are truly a refuge. I think it's helpful to reflect for a moment on these points of refuge daily. I think it's, if it inspires you to chant and all that, I think it's very good. But the main thing is that we know what it's all about. You know, about direction, about clarifying what is important, about priorities in life. You know, not in a heavy way, but just to remember and clarify. Do that in the morning. Do that before every undertaking when we up to go and do things. Also, whenever we need to make important decisions, be very clarifying. Clarifies our life, sets up clear values, clear priorities. And in, in that sense, it's a very strong practice. So we clarify our direction and what we can entrust ourselves to refuge. And then last point, we also need to look at our motivation and why we practice and why we do what we do in life. And here we can begin to look at our decisions and actions, not just in the light of our personal interest, but motivated much more by interest in life as a whole. It's that kind of change or shift of motivation. As we see our situation as humans, the preciousness, the impermanence, we see that all beings want happiness just like we do. 
but so often do exactly that which brings them suffering. We see that and we understand more and more in ourselves what actually brings happiness. We begin to feel compassion. And more often than we can act from a place of an open heart. And that doesn't mean we need to try to pretend that all we do comes out of compassionate altruism. It's fine to do skillful, helpful things for ourselves. It's important that we do that. We need that. And yet we want to keep an open heart and a wide perspective, which includes more, if not all, but more of life. And this again, in turn, will make our practice wider, will make our practice expansive, will make our practice more open. It can eliminate the pettiness from our life. It's a beautiful and inspiring attitude. If we practice it throughout our life, eventually, it makes our practice into bodhisattva practice. We've been talking about the other night. Sometimes dharma practice, real dharma practice, is compared to sun rays that shine into a room, a room which is otherwise dark, makes the whole room bright and light, and everything in that room is seen clearly. Bodhisattva practice is compared to the radiant sun itself. The sun's light floods across all of the whole world without choosing, without just being on one thing or one person or one interest. So the more open and the wider our motivation is, the more we can include other beings and the more powerful our practice becomes. The practice of meditation, practice of awareness, practice of insight in the impermanent, ingraspable nature of things, which here and now makes freedom possible, freedom from suffering, which also opens us to generosity and to love and to compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.